my talk today, uh, I guess so I was asked to talk about uh, migration as a political issue uh, today in Britain, especially in light of the upcoming election. So um, that's related to the work I do, but not uh, exactly uh, where my research is. So what I'm going to do is um, sort of a tour around reviewing um, a number of findings um, from the world of public opinion and electoral analysis on a number of different related themes um, on this broad topic, some very directly about elections, others more generally about what impact migration as an issue is having on the political party system, the political system in general, um, the relationship between the British public and their governing institutions. So... Uh, the five topics that I've, I've sort of chosen out of this, this very broad remit, uh, first, migration and the vote, um, migration and party systems. I think this is the order that I've got them in. Um, migrants themselves as voters, so how, how migrants um, vote a little bit, mostly focused here, a little bit of comparison to to the U.S. where um, migrants and uh, ethnic Latinos in particular have become uh, really a, uh, sometimes dominate the political discussion and are seen as a, a critical uh, group of voters um, for the future. Migration and trust, um, so looking at how, as I said, how this relationship between the governors and the governed uh, has been affected by the way migration has been handled through the political system. Um, and then just a few sort of loosely ordered thoughts relating to migration and campaigning, both political campaigns and sort of issue-centered advocacy campaigns. Um, so as I said, this is going to be sort of a, a tour around a number of different um, types of, of work and findings. Mine will only pop in there um, uh, occasionally but hopefully it'll be a lot to, to talk about when we're done. So starting off migration and, uh, and the vote. So it may be, though I guess my, my introduction to this may maybe should change after just chatting with Rob beforehand about how the campaign has been going, um, going here and how um, in 2010 it seemed like all we heard about uh, from certain voices, prominent voices during the campaign was about migration, um, and at least Rob's take is it's been much less of a, a visible factor anyway uh, in the campaigns. But that would be sort of a, a return to tradition where um, the, the major parties, uh, both, not counting the Lib Dems, the, the two major parties had uh, different but probably equally strong incentives not to talk too much about, about migration. And so maybe we're, we're returning a bit to that world. But as recently as 2005, um, migration at the, the mass level um, was really not a partisan issue. Uh, the 2005 campaign maybe um, started uh, a, a process whereby it became such. Um, but actually, if we go back just 10 years, views on immigration were not correlated with partisan leanings uh, at all at the mass level. It was uh, your, which newspaper you read rather than which party you, you identified with that was, was related to, to migration views. Um, and now that's, that's changed a lot uh, over the past 10, probably only really took five years for that, that relationship to really, really emerge. Um, so that now migration views are related quite strongly. Later on, uh, I'll show some evidence that maybe that, that isn't necessarily a, a permanent or even stable, long-lasting feature of the, the partisan landscape here, but for now it is. Um, so one question, given that migration in the last election or two has been, uh, has been a factor in partisan politics, how much impact has it had? Um, so in, in 2005, I think it's, it's widely agreed that the conservatives tried to, um, tried to campaign, tried to make um, some very sort of odd-sounding appeals on immigration, um, the Are You Thinking What We're Thinking campaign, um, just, just sort of 
hinting at something on almost a, a, a sinister way to try to appeal to sort of uh, latent concern, unrest about immigration. Mm -hmm. That didn't seem to work too well. Um, it, it certainly um, it, it didn't help them to a victory, at least. But by 2010, um, I think the, the popular consensus uh, agrees with the scholarship that's been done that migration as an issue was a factor. Now, how much of a factor is debated, but it was certainly a factor in labor losing popularity and, and ultimately being kicked out of government. So these are a couple of, does this work? A couple of sort of uh, dueling quantitative analyses of this, um, of this race. They all agree that immigration hurt labor. So actually I should say they, they both, both of these studies looked um, at uh, 2005 labor voters and looking at the factors that led those voters uh, to either stay with labor or switch. So what did they find? This is the, the Flynn Ford Somerville piece. Uh, so you can see here, this is um, from the British election study, sort of leading survey, high quality, large end sample of British voters, looking at how 2005 labor voters said on the survey that they voted the next time around in 2010. Um, so you can see here labor retained only about 63% of those voters. And, and then these uh, crosstabs are, are breaking out uh, how, this, how these guys disperse depending on their feelings about immigration. Um, and so you can see this middle one sort of stands out and seems to suggest that it really might have been all about immigration. Um, so people who said, yes, I, I agree that labor's performance, I uh, felt very negatively about how labor handled the immigration issue. Um, only 38% of, of those voters stayed with labor the next time around. Um, uh, now, they didn't all go uh, over to the conservatives, just as many went to the Lib Dems. But then if you were relatively content with how labor handled immigration, you were m more likely than the typical labor voter to vote labor again in 2010. Um, so it seems like a huge gap. But then on these other issues that you notice this um, question incorporates the Labor Party itself, whereas these questions more generally about immigration how negatively people feel about it, um, and whether they rank it among the most important problems. Uh, those indicators alone had some effect, but not, not the magnitude um, uh, of the effect that actually rating the party's performance on the issue uh, had on whether you, you switched or stayed. So the conclusion that, that these authors reached from this was that, yes, immigration was a factor, but they argue from further regression analysis that, um, unfortunately, they don't show very much of. Uh, they argue that actually the economy was the, the dominant factor and, and immigration worked more on the margins. Uh, Evans and his co-author with a name that's cut off and that I can't pronounce anyway, uh, but Jeff Evans uh, here from Oxford, modeled things slightly differently, but um, I think the key... The key thing here is that uh, he used the same question about how he rated labor's handling of immigration uh, as an issue and um, constructed a model that predicts that probability that we saw in the crosstabs, whether, you, whether again, these 2005 labor voters, uh, whether they switched and voted for someone else uh, in 2010. Um, and assembled a number of different plausible predictors of that likelihood. So it's, it's called a hazard model. In this case, the, the hazard is that, that switch from a labor voter to anyone else. So down here, what's not highlighted, um, but had the, the largest coefficients anyway, was your initial feelings about uh, labor, whether you, you were a strong labor supporter or a very strong labor supporter. So strength of initial identification was uh, a significant factor uh, in staying with labor. But he finds that even controlling for how you felt labor did on the economy, on NHS, terrorism and crime, all the other sort of hot-button issues, uh, none of those had the sort of effect that, that migration did. 
um, whereas your feelings about migration. Oh, and, and also, um, maybe surprisingly, your evaluation of the economy. Um, so these, these two variables, looking back and evaluating um, either your own pocketbook, um, how you did over the previous five years, and of course this is when the economy was still in the tank then, or evaluating the national economy. Surprisingly, these are usually strong predictors of vote choice. Um, but what they find is that immigration stands out, a marginal effect of how you rated uh, Gordon Brown, but fairly convincing evidence that immigration was unusual um, in 2010, that more than, uh, more than these other issues and more than some of the usual predictors of the vote, it was really the dominant factor in getting labor voters to, to switch and abandon labor uh, in 2010. Uh, right. So these are, these are the issues that didn't come up. Uh, as having any effect on this likelihood. So the size of these effects, which is not clear at all from that, that table, but they work it out in the paper. So the predicted probability of switching from labor, shifting from 20%. So if you gave, again, among these 2005 labor voters, those who uh, gave the party the most positive rating on their handling of immigration, they only had about an 8% chance of of switching and voting for someone else. If you took people at the other end, the people who gave it a very negative rating, uh, they had about a 20% probability. And this is similar in magnitude to um, uh, the impact of evaluations of the party leader. Now, they don't estimate how much this shifted the vote share overall, um, but they do show us, this here the last column is the important one, uh, how many people fell into each of these categories. So you can see that Half of this sample, a full half, rated labor as, as handling immigration very badly. Uh, another, more than a fifth, said fairly badly. So um, it was the majority of the, le the electorate that was down there uh, on the negative end of the scale. So I did some back-of-the-envelope calculations um, on the basis of, of that, that top group, the 50%. And if I'm correct, that cost labor about five percentage points um, in the overall polls. Now, that wasn't quite enough to swing the whole election, but it was a good chunk of their, their uh, margin of defeat without getting into the, the swing-a-meter and assumptions about swing and seats. Um, I think they lost by seven points something. Um, in, in percentage terms, and so this may have accounted for the majority of that, uh, that deficit if these guys are right. Um, now, one thing, one caveat about both of these studies is they are looking at labor voters and um, voters that labor uh, potentially lost. It doesn't consider the possibility of uh, movement in the other way. Uh, it may seem unlikely, but there could have been voters who uh, who hadn't voted for labor before but might have been put off, say, by the, the Tory campaign uh, and its emphasis on immigration restrictions. So there, there could have been movement in the other direction, which would dampen our estimates of this overall impact. Part of why that's unlikely is n not even so much that there aren't people uh, like that who might be, be persuaded by a more liberal alternative, but um, labor might not have been perceived to really offer an alternative. Um, as people here know, uh, there was not a lot of great love for labor policy, particularly toward asylum uh, in the early 2000s. So uh, even if that constituency was available, labor may not have capitalized on it in, in 2010. So my sort of overall reading on, on this, clearly people who thought labor uh, handled immigration poorly uh, were quite likely to switch. This is true even net of other issues and other factors that are normally stronger determinants. Whether it swung the election or had quite as big an impact as, as Evans claims is a little bit less certain. It's a little more work that would need to be done. Um, but clearly 2010 marked a change in immigration as, as a significant factor uh, as an electoral <coughs> issue. Okay, so Given that, what does that mean for the upcoming election? Will it be more or less of a factor this time around? Um, as I said, I've been talking to Rob and maybe thinking that in terms of visibility, uh, it seems to be less. Um, 
But if we look at public opinion evidence, it's even more salient as an issue, uh, meaning that uh, members of the public are even more likely than they were five years ago to say that immigration is one of the three most important issues facing Britain. Part of this is just is sort of an artifact of the way the question is asked. Five years ago, almost everybody was saying the economy, and so that takes one of your three slots almost automatically. Now, in better economic times, it's still up there, but not quite as dominant. So, but, but at the very least, it's no less salient to the public than it was, and, and probably more. However, it may be less of a partisan factor again, um, because there's no longer a, a clear winner in the public mind between the two biggest parties on the issue. Um, and I'll show you stuff on that shortly. Uh, on the third hand, maybe it's more of a factor because we have a whole new rising party that was existed in 2010 but was, was not really given the time of day. Um, and now are a significant factor. It's just a, a matter of, of how big, how well they do, but um, they're, you, you could argue that immigration is already more of a factor than it was five years ago just because of, of that fact, how key it's been to UKIP's rise. So the current setting, as we know, in 2010, there were a lot of, uh, well, one especially big promise made to the electorate um, by David Cameron, no ifs, ands, or buts. Uh, he was going to make sure that net migration uh, was reduced from the hundreds of thousands to the tens of thousands, and as everyone is equally aware, uh, not only did he not do that, he didn't make any progress toward it in the end. Net migration is now 300,000, 300, 298, which is more, a little bit more than, than when they started. It's, yeah. So 276, that's the number that sticks in my mind. Um, anyway, certainly no progress. So maybe not surprisingly, um, when you make a big, highly visible promise and don't deliver, there's a lot of dissatisfaction uh, with government policy. Now, this could be for other reasons, too. Some people might, might have not liked the pledge to begin with and, and weren't happy with um, some of the changes that real policy changes that were made to try to make progress toward this goal. So this just tells us whether... Uh, people like what the current government has done, not what changes they would like to make. But you can see from those big red blocks there that uh, a majority are, are dissatisfied and uh, the small green ones, very few actually, will say that they're even fairly satisfied. And then when you look over here on the right, this is people who are voted Tory in 2010 but are now saying they're voting for UKIP and um, massive dissatisfaction. Um, so... I think we all probably assume that that is what's driving the movement from uh, from conservatives to UKIP, and, and this uh, evidence lines up with that instinct. So this just just breaks it down further by by which party people are planning to vote for now. And this is from um, sorry from Ipsos Mori um, uh, polling that was done in February and March of this year. So pretty recent stuff. Um, so again, just showing um, in the, the column on your far left is, is over that overall sense of dissatisfaction. Even, even among conservatives, there's not really a, much of a sense that, that the current government has actually handled this issue uh, well. UKIP uh, supporters, again, stand out as the most discontented. It would have been interesting to, to see pretty high levels of dissatisfaction with SNP voters. Um, we've debated a lot last year whether Scotland really was more, more pro-migration or a little bit less intolerant anyway. Um, so maybe a sign of that. And even in the one-on-one -on -one comparison with the previous government, which if you read many of the, if you read the tabloid press, the anti-migration papers, you would think that the Labour Party will just never be forgiven for the, the horrors uh, it inflicted with its its immigration policy. That, at least from this uh, this set of data, that doesn't uh, seem like it's obviously the case. So, yeah, it's it's a little a little confusing to look at all these bars. I think one thing to notice is the size of these blue ones that say there's no difference, and that's sort of the the plurality position uh, among the public that they both did sort of equally poorly. 
Here, conservatives, the, the partisanship comes out, and even though they're not really satisfied, they're still a majority will say, um, these guys in the green over here, a majority say, well, it, we're not satisfied, but they still did better than labor. But really, um, among just about all the others, there, there's not really a sense that, that the conservatives did any better, um, despite all the noise they've made about it. And so that shows in this time series from Ipsos Mori on which party has the best policies on immigration. And the things to note here, first of all, the rise of UKIP. We weren't even asking about UKIP uh, until a couple years ago, but, but here they come with about 20% uh, already thinking that they have the best policy. Uh, but then also, if we go back into the lead-up to 2010, we see this big gap between the conservatives and labor. So a lot more people thought the conservatives before uh, they took power thought that, that they had the better policies. And I, I think as they took office and, and did what they were doing and had the, the impact or lack of it that they had, uh, they quickly lost that ground. Uh, labor gaining a bit. Uh, again, a lot going to UKIP, but now we're at, at a point where uh, there really isn't any difference. And this, if that's even a significant difference, it's, it's labor and UKIP rated slightly uh, slightly more people rating them as their preference for immigration policy uh, than the conservatives. So this may show us why, um, outside of UKIP, no one's quite so eager to make immigration policy the centerpiece of their campaigns. Also may show how difficult it is to govern, right, as, as soon as they took over, that, that edge started to disappear. So, yeah, so interesting how it went from really not a partisan issue even 10 years ago to just central to the campaign and, and possibly the swing issue in 2010 uh, to much less of a partisan issue now with, again, the big exception of, of UKIP. So immigration certainly doesn't seem to be helping the conservatives relative to labor anymore. Uh, if anyone is gaining from the issue now, it's UKIP, which of course creates an incentive, again, to not talk about it so much if all you're doing is raising the, the profile of the single issue um, that is the issue for the single issue party uh, that's threatening your votes, um, you're going to try to downplay that issue as much as you can. So probably mostly pretty intuitive stuff um, up until now. I want to talk about this next topic, so immigration and the party system, uh, in slightly more theoretical and maybe speculative terms. Um, so we've seen how, and everyone's well aware of what, what UKIP is, is up to, um, and to some extent it's a new phenomenon, but uh, in another longer view, it may be the continuation of a, a long-term phenomenon called de-alignment, which political scientists here have been debating uh, for some time. So, of course, the traditional basis of, of uh, British party politics has been class. There have been analyses, yeah, going back decades, that have shown... Uh, Dealignment, sort of a, a pulling away from that uh, set of cleavages and sometimes from, from the party system as a whole. FLAS has become less predictive. It's still a strong predictor of, of how you vote, but less, um, less dominant than it had been. And we've seen, um, this is Evans's stuff again, arguing for the emergence of uh, a second dimension to British politics uh, that he and others call the libertarian-authoritarian uh, dimension, so um, sometimes just called social issues, um, feelings uh, on issues like women's rights, gay rights, racial tolerance, these sorts of things that aren't class issues uh, per se and in fact cut across uh, class loyalties. You have people who are more or less authoritarian um, in sort of all, uh, all class strata. Um, and immigration, um, it's sometimes treated as, as an economic issue, first and foremost, but it also taps into this libertarian-authoritarian dimension um, in, in terms of being about tolerance um, and sort of moral traditionalism. So the question here is if we're seeing um, uh, progress or, or realignment uh, rather than just a dealignment in process. So realignment theory is... Uh, probably a slightly out-of-fashion um, theory in, in American uh, political 
science, it was abused a little bit. You had scholars coming out after pretty much every election saying, well, this was a realigning election. Um, and more often than not, it, it that looked foolish uh, four years later. But the theory um, nonetheless gives us some factors to to think about in the, the current British case that might tell us something about whether UKIP is just part of a broader phenomenon where the party system is going to come out on the other side looking looking very different and, and even less rooted in class and more more rooted in, in immigration or this broader uh, second dimension. So what do we need to get uh, an electoral realignment? Uh, first and foremost, you need a new issue to come up that has sort of enough power to to dominate political debate and probably to to exert a pretty dominant pull on uh, the vote choices of, of many citizens, make them willing to sort of throw aside their own, their traditional loyalties and, and voting habits on the basis of whatever this new issue is. It has to be an issue that cuts across uh, previous party lines. Um, so the the fact that that immigration is sometimes said to divide both labor, we have the, the blue labor phenomenon, uh, and certainly divides conservatives. There are more uh, sort of the traditionalist conservatives and then the economic conservatives who are all for migration. So it has something of, of that as well. Uh, here's where maybe we're lacking so far in, in terms of major political groups taking clear and opposing positions. Uh, we certainly have several strong articulators of the restrictive side, the anti-immigration or restrictive immigration side. Um, it's yet to be seen if any major political group is really going to take the other side on that issue as opposed to the, the sort of, well, us too, but not, not quite as much uh, approach that, that labor in particular often seems, uh, seems to take. So, but in any case, if you get these three factors occurring at the same time around the same issue, that, that sets up the possibility of, of a realignment of the electorate, either in one election or, or across several. Whether it actually happens or not, well, there are a lot of contingencies to this, and, and there are only a few cases that we can point to in the research, so um, we can't really estimate likelihoods or any, anything of that sort um, that we can quantify. We can look back uh, historically at what the major examples from the states have been, um, and you can see they've all been very potent issues, um, and you can see why these were enough to, to really turn politics uh, entirely inside out. So in the, the antebellum era, eight, uh, 1850s, slavery um, was such a strong issue that um, it, it led to the demise of the Whig Party, one of the, the two major parties in the first half of the 19th century, um, to be replaced by the party of Lincoln. The, the Great Depression um, upended a lot of traditional loyalties as well, led to uh, an, an ascendant democratic coalition in the 1930s. And then civil rights didn't change the, the parties so much as realign who was for which one. Um, the South notably <laughs> switched from the solid democratic South to, after a few wish-washy elections, the solid Republican South as a reflection of the conservatism of that area on racial issues. So is that relevant to the present case? Well, I've already said immigration is very salient. It is a relatively new issue. It does cross-cut the party system, both at the elite level and as, as Rob Ford and Matt Goodwin point out, it, it divides them at the, uh, the mass level as well. Um, they talk a lot about the, the left-behind um, traditional labor constituents in, in small towns and areas with economic decline feel like they didn't really benefit from new labor or were ever really spoken to by new labor. Um, and these, in addition to these disaffected conservatives, these have been uh, a source of new UKIP voters as well. Um, and then we know about the conservative divisions. So it does seem to meet some of these preconditions uh, for realignment, with again this exception, you need clear alternatives um, for people to sort themselves out on uh, on the immigration issue as opposed to um, economic or the way they 've been sorting themselves out uh, to this point and so far, I think there 's a lot of muddying of the waters 
from, especially this time, really from, from both major parties. So this is big stuff if it actually happens. Um, I think I'd probably put the likelihood of these sort of the, the more severe outcomes uh, among these as pretty low at this point. But again, it does show some of these uh, parallels. So the, the mildest is maybe what's most likely, which is just the major parties reincorporating the issue. If labor and conservatives uh, sort of start providing these clear alternatives and quit sitting on the fence, um, that may, uh, may allow the, the sort of existing uh, party cleavage to reabsorb the immigration issue. And... There, there are strong pressures toward, in a first-past-the-post system with uh, winner-take-all constituencies, there are strong pressures toward um, having things sort themselves out in, in as, as more of a, a, a typical two-party system. Now, Britain has been, I have this, I have this later on, it's a scofflaw nation as far as political scientists are concerned because one of our great empirical regularities we never have anything that seems to, you know, be a solid scientific law, except this Duverger's law, which is that the number of parties is a, a function of the um, the electoral system, and if you have um, constituencies that produce a single winner, a single representative, uh, you should get a two-party system. Well. The British have been sort of considered two and a half for a while. Now, I don't know what we're up to. We may be up to five. Wouldn't, in theory, wouldn't be very stable, um, so may not be likely to last. So probably it's most likely that the, the major parties will somehow manage to reincorporate the issue. They may realign themselves around the issue the way the American parties did around race in the 1960s and present clear alternatives. Um, or we could see these more sort of radical outcomes um, where a new party really becomes a threat and is either absorbed in more of a, a higher level, um, sort of more, more explicit deal, um, sort of parallel maybe to the Dixiecrats, the Southern Democrats, who were, you know, ran third candidates and, and so on for a few, a few elections, uh, 48, 64 uh, until being sort of absorbed into the Republican Party and having actual um, representatives switch parties while they were in office. Or the most radical, probably the, the least likely, is for a new party to arise and replace a major party. Um, doesn't happen often, but it does happen. Um, so what UKIP might, might, why they might add to or realign the party system would have to be that immigration was a powerful enough issue to do that. I think that remains to be seen. Um, second one, both major parties uh, failing to satisfy public demand. Uh, that's certainly the case so far. Um, and another factor sort of in UKIP's corner is um, the reputational shield that um, this was the, the lovely phrase coined by my uh, friend and co-author Elizabeth Eversflotten. She argues that this is what uh, an essential characteristic for uh, right-wing anti-immigration parties in Europe. She has historical evidence on this. Most of these new parties uh, that come up to fight against immigration, most of them fail. Um, we worry a lot more about the ones that succeed, but uh, the vast majority fail. The ones that succeed in uh, almost every case, except uh, the French, which is a, granted a big exception, and potentially these, these guys now in Sweden. But with few exceptions, the parties that have been successful in any lasting way have not been single-issue uh, anti-immigration parties. They've started with another issue, and that's given them what Elizabeth and now I also call a reputational shield against um, arguments that you're just a bunch of racists, xenophobes, fascists, what have you. People may have a lot of negative feelings about... Uh, about immigration, um, but especially in this country, but, but uh, across uh, most of Europe, they don't want to be associated with that, that sort of thing. Uh, so the BNP here flamed out, no reputational shield, direct links to fascists. EDL never really got anywhere. Uh, UKIP started out on the, the EU rather than immigration. So that, I mean, that in the model, that's, that's all it takes to give you enough of a defense against these accusations. Uh, now, it doesn't stop people from making it, and one of the interesting features of 
I guess not so much the campaign season, but the run-up to the campaign season was a lot of incidents sparking little mini-debates about whether UKIP were racists, uh, whether liberals should call them out as racists. I talk about that a little bit more at the end, but uh, for now it's just it's one of those things that's, that's in UKIP's corner that says they may make a lasting impact um, because they're not so easy to dismiss that way. Uh, but there are a number of factors working against UKIP, right? The electoral system, uh, immigration might uh, fall back relative to other issues. The electorate is changing, although slowly, um, and I'll say more about that in a minute. And yes, Duverger's law, right? And with the SNP, it's it's unbelievable how many parties this uh, this uh, first past the post system is at least flirting with sustaining right now. So, uh, changing electorate. A lot of the talk about immigration as a political issue focuses on the white uh, majority, um, certainly the largest chunk of the electorate, but far from the only voters out there and uh, uh, a shrinking, if still dominant, group. So first of all, as far as eligibility, citizens obviously can vote, but also qualifying Commonwealth citizens. So. Uh, some migrants can vote even in parliamentary elections uh, without British citizenship. Um, if some players have their way, this will change. This has the potential to be a political controversy, and, and pressure groups have raised this. Uh, but for now, that they are part of the electorate <laughs> as well. The approximate numbers, um, uh, MyGob's figures have the 2013 UK population as... 12.5% uh, foreign-born. Subtracting foreign citizens leaves us with just under 5% of the population um, as foreign-born but not foreign citizens. Um, so potentially 5% um, of... Now that's population, so you'd have to adjust to voting age population to be more precise about this. But at least gives us a good, good ballpark sense of the size of the migrant population that, that is eligible to vote. Uh, now, we don't actually know very much about how migrants vote per se. Uh, the vast majority of the work that's been done has looked at ethnic minorities, and we know that that's not really not the same thing, certainly, and may not even be a very good proxy. Um, but that's, that's the way the, the data have been gathered to this point. And from that research, we know that there's a considerable ethnic gap uh, in the vote. So if you just look at those, those first two columns on your left, uh, comparing white voters to um, all ethnic minority, well, all the ones that were included in this MBES survey, which had a national sample and then oversampled these particular groups. Um, so obviously a huge difference. And, and uh, to this point, this is, this is 2010, of an election that Labor lost, um, but still had two-thirds of the ethnic minority vote, um, at least as we can, we can capture it here. And some variation across the groups, a bit lower for, uh, for Indian and Pakistani voters than, uh, than the other groups listed. There's a turnout gap, so one problem with relying on these constituencies is that ethnic minorities, to this point, have turned out to vote at lower rates uh, than whites, it turns out, though, and, and maybe this is a sign that it's, it's a little easier to change, um, the main barrier is registration. They're less likely to be registered, but um, among people who are registered, that ethnic gap goes away uh, and turnout is equal. Now, what impact does this have? The, the sort of naive model, um, and this is from, from stuff that Sundar and, and British Future uh, put together uh, as a as a, a political think piece more than anything. They suggest that if um, this ethnic gap disappeared entirely, you would have had a, an actual conservative majority in 2010 rather than what we ended up with. 24 seats would have, would have shifted uh, from labor to conservative. Uh, the reason I call it a naive model, it doesn't look at other reasons um, why, um, other than sort of immigration and issues related directly to ethnicity, um, why closing that gap uh, to zero is really unlikely, um, because there are other reasons why uh, ethnic minorities are more likely to go for labor. It, um, it, it's not just the fact of their 
minority status, um, but also socioeconomic factors, um, they're more likely to fit uh, the sort of class profile of a labor voter. Um, so I think it's unrealistic to think that um, migration and, and anything about ethnic politics um, has quite that big of a direct impact. But this portion of the electorate is growing. If might grow even more quickly with uh, direct efforts to uh, get people registered. Uh, so it's, it's not, not insignificant. On the other hand, it may not be all, uh, all about immigration, and this would be true even if we had more data on migrant voters themselves. The research that's, that's been done um, mainly out of this MBEST study and led by Maria Sobolewska uh, at Manchester uh, suggests that immigration policy isn't really uh, that big of a deal for minority voters. One of the strongest predictors instead is perceptions about discrimination, whether personally or in society. And voters who perceive that there are high levels of discrimination are very unlikely to vote for conservatives. Um, so basically for minority voters, it, class as well as, as ethnic identity uh, can lead to labor support or away from conservatives, um, but it's not necessarily immigration. And, and indeed, opinion isn't as divided on immigration itself uh, as people sometimes assume. So this chart compares British-born uh, whites on the one side uh, with people who are either non-white or foreign-born or both on the question of whether immigration should be increased, reduced, or kept the same. Um, so certainly there's a difference. Um, British-born white people are really overwhelmingly in, in the reduction column. Um, but here, very little support for increasing immigration numbers. The modal response is, is to keep it the same rather than reduce it a lot. But if you add these reducers up, that adds up to about half of the non-white and or foreign-born uh, population. And this is from... 2009, 2010 numbers. Um, so it's it's not clear. It, it it is clear that the conservatives are having a great deal of trouble uh, attracting support from ethnic minorities. It's not so clear that it's immigration as an issue uh, that's preventing them from doing so. And there's a parallel here with America as well. When uh, people survey Latino Americans about their priorities, what what the most important issues are. Um, they're not all that uh, much more likely to say immigration is, is the key issue for them. They care about the economy, sort of like everyone else, health care, pretty much the way the rest of the country uh, does. On the other hand, um, there's been a strong shift uh, since, was, since 2008. Um, it was 04 to 08 marked sort of the biggest change at the presidential level. Uh, a, a big shift to the, the Democratic column. And people have argued, and, and I've yet to see this demonstrated um, with uh, sort of convincing evidence from voting data, but the argument is that it's not Republicans' issue positions, but the way they tend to talk when they start to talk about immigration and integration issues and insisting on using the word illegal immigration um, and criticizing anything else as PC. It's this sort of stuff rather than uh, whether they're for or against uh, particular policies uh, that may be what's putting off many Latino voters. Not all good news for labor on this front, however, there are signs of um, not so much that they're losing voters yet, but that the strength of that identification has eroded a bit. So uh, going back to 97 BES data, um, this is more from Maria's work, shows um, uh, voters in these ethnic groups at almost 80% labor identifiers saying that I, I feel closer to labor than any other party. Since then, uh, big dramatic drop-offs among uh, Indians, Pakistanis, but uh, across all four of these groups decline uh, in that sense of loyalty and identification uh, as labor voters as opposed to people who just uh, are voting labor for now, but may be open to change. So just uh, wrapping this stuff up, it's not that the Tories are gaining votes yet, but um, there may be a little more of a sense of a float to that vote 
perceived discrimination seems to be a bigger factor than immigration policy um, and turn out a big factor in um, dampening the impact of, of ethnic minority uh, voters. So this is something that uh, could actually be changed by uh, political activism. Another theme that you hear a lot about in terms of, of a changing electorate is generational change. So we've heard a lot about, uh, at times, about younger voters being more pro-immigration, maybe a little bit of an exaggeration, but uh, what this is showing um, is a significant widening in the gap between generations in terms of thinking that immigration is the most important issue facing the country. So among older voters, it's really um, risen sharply just in the last few years. I suppose it, it has over a similar time period for, for Gen Y, uh, but not quite as much, and so the gap has grown. It's an exaggeration, though, to think that there's a, a rising new generation of really uh, real immigration liberals. Um, there's still concern. It's less heightened than for older generations. But sort of the other problem with the, the generational model is, um, you know, this takes a long time, and it's, it's not really... Yeah, these are slow-moving changes. Uh, they may not pan out the way you think anyway, but politicians can't wait for you know a good chunk of the constituency they have now to die off and just, just focus on the younger voters. So probably advocates shouldn't wait either. Um, okay, so let me definitely at least get through this trust stuff. So longer-term, sort of deeper system-level concerns. This is from the work of, of Lauren McLaren, who's done some... Uh, some interesting and pretty convincing empirical work on this, but at the theoretical level, Lauren's argument is, is, is captured here, that there's something about migration and its relationship to the national community, uh, the national polity, that, that makes sort of disappointments on this issue not only a reason to uh, change your vote, but a reason to really lose trust um, in the way your country is being governed and the people who are governing it. So when individuals perceive that immigration has threatened the national community, she says, the institutions that govern them are likely to be called into question. Um, so threatening latent feelings about the nation state. We hear a lot the phrase, we need to secure our borders, our, border, our borders ourselves, right? This is securing the national community in some ways for... Uh, for some people. Now, let me show the results before worrying about criticism. She looks at, at uh, 2005 BES pre-election and post-election surveys, so it's a, a very strong design. She measures impact on political trust comprised of these three variables. Do you trust parliament, British politicians generally, um, and then a non-elected institution, trust in the police, and because of this design, she's able to include uh, trust in the, the, those institutions in the pre-election survey as a predictor of trust in the <coughs> post-election survey. Um, so very strong design. She's just looking at change over, over this few-month period. And she finds that immigration attitudes do predict a decline in trust uh, over this period, and, and other issues do not. So I got that right. Measured before the election. So it, it's too, too big of a table to, to put up there, but she controls for a lot of factors, socioeconomic and other issues, and nothing else uh, has the similar effect. So the implication that she's drawing is that immigration, more than other issues, has the potential to weaken these ties between um, the governed and the governors. Last thing, few scattered shorts on, uh, scattered thoughts on migration and campaigning. First of all, I think uh, this comes more from my experience, not in the research, but um, being around NGOs who are always saying, what are we going to do about the election? What are we going to do about the election? Um, and I think they're not always clear on what their goals are or should be around the election. As far as parties, they know what their goal is. Their goal is to get elected. Um, and so uh, a sentiment that floats around um, the NGO community uh, that's liberal-minded on these issues is where are the leaders, you know, who is going to change the national conversation? Um, why don't the politicians show any leadership? And that is such a misplaced hope that it is not even funny. So the people that are going to change the conversation are the people who are asking that question. They're the ones that care about it. They don't have the, the megaphone that the politicians do. Um, but to think that... Um, 
people who are trying to get elected by the public are going to go around trying to change people's minds on one of the most salient issues that's determining their votes is absolutely not going to happen. Advocates, I think, sometimes uh, also face this dilemma, um, first of all, knowing what they can expect out of, uh, out of political leaders, also a dilemma between um, electoral success, um, helping their favored party uh, along, or at least not being too critical, in order to get closer to the sorts of policies that they'd like to see versus really driving at their own issue and focusing on persuasion, even if it um, makes an unpopular issue more salient and you know, maybe um, shifts the conversation in a way that you know, for an election cycle or two favors UKIP because we're talking about immigration. Um, so persuasion as opposed to agenda setting or, or reframing. Um, and I think this holds for, um, for groups on both sides. It's been, it's been interesting for me to watch how groups like Migration Watch have responded to, uh, to the conservative party's uh, shortcomings in meeting their goals. And they've gone really pretty easy on the Tories. Um, and that suggests to me that, interestingly, they're, they are Migration Watch, but yet uh, a part of them also... Uh, cares more about electoral success and getting the major party that they think is closest to them than actually driving the agenda on that issue. Yeah, and then this is tangentially related, but I'll just I'll just throw it up there um, in the last minute or two that I have or have given myself. In terms of um, prejudice reduction and relating to the work that many of you uh, know, and apologies that I certainly can't get into it now, but that I've done on on anti-prejudice norms and using this, this fact that most people don't want to be associated with outright racism um, as a political resource, looked a bit at, at things that work and things that don't as sort of campaigning strategies. And I think the, the key findings here, first of all, intergroup contact is um, the, absolutely the most tried and true and reliable method of fostering more positive attitudes across group lines, whatever those groups are. Um, so segregation in society is sometimes an underrated issue. Segregation really fosters continued intolerance more than almost anything else. Um, and then the contrast between autonomy-based appeals and uh, appeals based on explicit criticism or shame and guilt. This was a really interesting study that, uh, that I ran across by a group from Toronto. So they tested the impact on people of autonomous statements, like priming people to think with statements like, I value diversity, I enjoy relating to people of different groups, making people identify with this, um, with that aspect of their, uh, their personal convictions, uh, as opposed to statements like, I would be ashamed of myself if I were prejudiced, or people in my social circle disapprove of prejudice. When you tell people that, you get a backlash effect. Um, when you tell people, when you remind them uh, of what we like to call their better angels, they exhibit more tolerant attitudes um, once, once they've been primed to think that way. Um, so appealing to, to citizens' better angels rather than uh, their guilty consciences, uh, along with contact, uh, a promising way to uh, reduce intolerance and maybe detoxify this issue once and for all.